You're listening to the Ship Bob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, e-com veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to episode number 24 of the ShipBob Operator Series. As always, I'm very excited with our guest today. I will be introducing him very shortly. Before we get to him, everybody throw in the chat, um, where are you dialing in from? You all know the drill. So as always, I'm, I'm here in um, what's usually sunny Southern California. Right now, it's all blurry because uh, while the fires are over 100 miles from me, the sky, it's, it's literally just soot everywhere, which is which is pretty crazy. Nick, you calling in from, from the Cape as usual? Cape as usual. That's right. It's taking us all the way to episode 26. So <laughs> I'm going to keep the tradition going. Lots of uh, Austin folk here, though, too. That's cool to see. Yeah. And before I introduce you uh, fully, Brent, you're calling in from? I'm calling in from our pool house in Austin, Texas. And I would warn people that there is a rain and occasionally lightning storm outside. And so if suddenly I disappear, that's because... A bolt came close and knocked out our power, and I'll just have to give the Wi-Fi a minute or so to reset. <laughs> nice. I was fortunate to live in Austin for a little bit, and what was surprising to me from you know the first time I came out to interview with with Big Commerce to living out there was pretty much every month there is rain. So it's a uh, you wouldn't think of of Texas or Austin necessarily is green, but it's green all the time. And especially some of the views from the big commerce HQ, it's, it's, I love it. Just the rolling hills and the green. So not what you would expect in Texas. So here we go. People in from, let's see, Canada, Austin, Pennsylvania, DC, Colorado. I'm sure we've got some people more overseas um, that will throw it in there. So love it. People are calling them from everywhere. So I'm going to give a, a little bit of a longer intro than usual because of our guest, Brent Bellum, is a rather accomplished and has had a, a rather exciting last, you know, let's say month with over at Big Commerce. And so we have Brent Bellum here. As he mentioned, he's calling in from Austin, Texas as the CEO of Big Commerce, which, as you all know, is uh, one of the leading e-commerce platforms across SMB, the mid-market and enterprise. And we're definitely going to dive into the mid-market shortly. The APO uh, just over a month ago have a an, have had an extremely successful run so far. I believe it's up nearly four x from their initial offering price, which is amazing to see. Some huge surges on announcements of of their earnings and partnerships with people like Facebook. Prior to Big Commerce, Brent was the president and COO at HomeAway. He helped take them public almost a decade ago, so in 2011. And before that, he was VP of Global Product at PayPal and the CEO of PayPal Europe. The first business question I want to get to with, with Brent is actually where he started his career in the e-commerce space over at Escalate. But before we get there, I don't know if I've ever even admitted this to you, Brent, but people ask, like, you know, how's it working from Brent? What are things that you've learned? Something I always call out. Well, one is, is you know, your hyper focus, which is something that is, you know, unparalleled and something that I try to model myself after from, from working under you. But another is, is I've jokingly called you like the LeBron James of email. Like, I don't know how you do it, but you reply so quickly. And it's not just like a yes or a no, but it's like with deep thoughtfulness and thoroughness. I know you're a huge fan of Inbox Zero. How do you do it? Well, Myers-Briggs, they've got that dimension that's P versus J. J's are people that like clarity and plans and decisions and outcomes. And P's are folks that like open-endedness and ambiguity and options and stuff like that. I'm all J. So I'm happy when I'm on top of everything. I can't go on vacation without being on top of my email. The notion of to-dos piling up and people... I mean, part of it's just a sense of accountability to myself, but it's also a sense of accountability to other people. If they're sending me emails and needing a response, I don't want to be the thing that holds them up from making progress. I know how much happiness I get from getting stuff done. And I just presume that's what other people want. So it's both what makes me click, but I believe it's also helpful to other people. Although they sometimes take advantage of it. Folks will send me emails minutes before important meetings, counting on me to see that 
absorb it and react to it. And they're usually right, but that, that you know, that, that's kind of hard to pull off sometimes. Yeah. Cause I remember reading about that, you know, before I even joined big commerce about, you know, your approach to inbox zero, but then seeing in action, I even told Nick too. And when we asked you to join, which thanks again for joining us here, I was like, let's see, like, let's see how quickly he responds. And I think it was like within three minutes. And again, it's not just a yes or a no, but it's with, uh, you know, you actually think be- about it and provide a, a lot of value in the response as well. Yeah, yeah, I have, I have an earnings call. Our first earnings call is a public company coming up in a couple hours, and the only three emails in my inbox are all files that I need to reference for that. So <laughs> nice. Well, gl- glad you're prioritizing us before that. So let's jump into where you started your career. So over at Escalate, you know, is is really one of the the first players in the multi-tenant SaaS e-commerce space, along with Yahoo Stores and and Volusion and. And honestly, again, when I was looking at big commerce a while ago, like one of the things that stood out to me was as you came in, it's it's almost like this like roundabout love story of how you started your career there and now you're a big commerce and you're trying to solve, you know, more or less the same problem. And so would love to hear your take on, let's say with Escalate and how things have evolved. Like what were some of your business biggest learnings at Escalate and, and why do you think the market wasn't ready at the time? Yeah. So go back to the 1990s. I was uh, yeah, I started my career as a management consultant focusing on store-based retailers in 1993. And then the internet comes along and I kind of switched from offline retail to online retail and e-commerce in 1998. Never wanted to be a career consultant. And as I approached the end of the 90s, and I had to kind of make a bet on a business model that I thought was the most relevant and exciting way to serve online retailers. I learned about this, they called it the ASP model back then. They didn't even call it SaaS, this ASP model. And it seemed to me like a very better alternative to what a lot of companies were doing, which was spending millions of dollars on various software packages that they were then trying to cobble together uh, and then trying to host and secure and do all that kind of stuff. And most online retailers, most manufacturers, most businesses that are doing e-commerce aren't technology companies. That is the last thing they want to be saddled with because it's not just, oh, can you purchase and make it all the software and hardware work together? You know, you got the headaches of security vulnerabilities and PCI compliance and bug fixing and versioning and upgrading. I mean, it's just a nightmare uh, for most companies. And so the notion of a platform serving up all of these capabilities I didn't really call it the cloud back then either, but over the internet, to me, seemed like a better model. In the late 90s, I only knew of a, you know, a handful of companies that were doing that. You mentioned Yahoo Stores, Volusion. It was my company, Escalate, Blue Martini. And I went into it, and no more than a couple months after I got there, the internet 1.0 bubble burst. And we were, we were realizing just how complex and hard e-commerce is. We also made a mistake in not doing what classic disruptive technology does, we did not start at the very low end of the market. You know, Yahoo stores and Volusion in particular started at the very low end of the the market serving online retailers with the simplest of needs. We kind of started in the middle. I mean, three of our first customers were dot bombs, companies that actually IPO, public companies that ended up flaming out but they had more complex needs. And, and that made it a lot harder for us to integrate legacy systems and all this kind of stuff. So long and short of it was, it was the right idea, but you know, clearly you know, now 20 years later, but at the time, very, very hard to pull off. You know, the technology standards weren't there. The API standards weren't there. The ecosystem of apps and extensions weren't there. The third parties doing the systems integration between those apps and ERPs and, and other tools weren't there. We were having to do it all ourselves, too much to pull off at the time. But, you know, even though we were not succeeding, I left feeling like, well, that's still a much better model. And, you know, of course, I went on to to eBay right after that in 2001, eBay being entirely served up over the internet. So it was a marketplace kind of version. It made it even easier for individuals and small businesses to sell online without having to go buy and manage software and hosting and all that kind of stuff. But it was just a marketplace model rather than an online store model. And so I've always, I've always believed in it. And it was just astonishing to me in 2015 when 
you know, I was five years into my time at HomeAway and I got a recruiting call for big commerce. And, you know, I'd stayed current on payments and e-commerce the whole time. And when I looked at the industry and said, well, it's about time, it's taken a lot longer, but it's now is the time. SaaS is finally starting to win. You know, big commerce was the second biggest SaaS platform in the world. You know, there was demand where at the high end proving you could do it even for the largest of businesses. It was clear that 15 years later, this was the time and the perfect place for me to jump back in and, and really make it work this time. It's nice when you succeed at something, having had the courage to go back after failing at it once in your life. So a lot of things you mentioned there have opened up a lot of questions I had lined up for later, but a couple I want to jump into quickly. So you mentioned disruptive innovation. And I know a lot of that has been, you know, professed by Clayton Christensen, who you were fortunate to learn under during your time. I think in, I don't know if it was undergrad or postgrad, but if you could just give everybody just a a quick explanation of, you know, how you view disruptive innovation and the approach there and and how you you were able to apply those principles as you got to go through, like you said, a second time over big commerce. The chance to learn under Clay Christensen in business school in a class I took in 1997 was probably the luckiest academic break I ever had. This is the year before he published his first book called The Innovator's Dilemma and became so famous. That book sort of coined the term disruptive innovation, disruptive technology. The textbook definition is disruptive technology is a new technology that does something cheaper, faster, and easier for the underserved low end of the market. So in every one of his case studies, he targets, he talks about, you know, here's an industry or a category with established leaders who are serving the middle of the market and above very well. And they grow every year by adding more performance or functionality and charging more for it. But those market leaders leave the low end of the market, small businesses, really underserved. And they create an opening for a disruptor to come in and give them something cheaper, faster, easier. So that's clearly what eBay did. I mean, it made it possible for even you and me to go on and start selling something online in a matter of minutes. That's clearly what PayPal did. It made it possible for you and me to instantly start taking electronic payments by credit card, by bank transfer. And banks would have never given you and me without a business track record, a merchant account without charging us a fortune and maybe requiring collateral. And to this day, they don't facilitate bank-based transfers very well. And in comes PayPal and just sign up like that. And you're doing it instantly. I mean, they're actually giving money to somebody before you. they've even received it from you. It was crazy. But this is disruptive. They're, they're serving the very low end of the market that the incumbents think the credit card processors and the large banks left unserved. And of course, that's exactly what we started off doing too at Big Commerce, focusing on small businesses in a faster, easier, cheaper way to create a high-performing, successful online store you know, for the low, low price of $30 a month. The other thing that's relevant here, though, is when I came into Big Commerce, again, I took over for the founders five years ago, 2015. We were an SMB-centric platform. We were built for small business. And we had risen to number two in the world as a SaaS platform, which was great. But the bad news is that number one, Shopify, had a five-year head start on us. They started in 2004. We started in 2009. They had already IPO'd before I even got to big commerce and were you know, several times bigger than us. And what disruptive innovation did was tell me, okay, in that situation, how do you compete against them? And the answer isn't keep doing the exact same thing you've done up until now and expect to suddenly, when they're disruptive too, like outcompete them and come from way behind. You've got to do something different. And the whole theory of disruptive innovation is every case study starts at the low end of the market. But then once it builds scale, they add performance, add functionality, and start serving ever larger merchants. And you become really disruptive when you decide to add that performance and functionality. And then you decide to say, hey, now I'm going to go serve the mid-market too, which is what we did the day I walked in the door. I said, hey, team, we're going to start serving the mid-market and above now because no other SaaS platform is doing that. Shopify's focus is on small business. We'll keep doing that, but we're going to we're going to take on Magento in the mid-market. We're going to take on their just 800-pound guerrilla leadership in enterprise functionality and enterprise-level openness. But 
That was the right model for the on-premise era. We're now in the SaaS era. So we'll be the first SaaS platform to do that. And the whole proposition is when you get there, you know, hey, mid-market, we may only have 80% of the functionality of the market leader Magento, but it's the 80% that you want and need at a cost, a total cost of ownership that's 80% lower than that, right? And most businesses say, yes, please. Uh, you know, I want that cheaper, faster, easier, higher performing at a much lower cost. What, what do I have to lose? That's sort of the disruptive innovation theory in action. It begins with you have to start, the technology has to start at the underserved low end, but you're only disruptive if and when you then add functionality and start competing for the mid-market or even above large enterprise with, again, a more powerful but cheaper, faster, easier solution. So, you know, I've, I've just done that disruptive innovation thing over and over in my career, and I'm so grateful I learned it when I did. That's amazing. And I do want to revisit some of the PayPal examples, and you did bring up Shopify, so I have some questions around them as well. But talking about the mid-market, so, you know, from the day that you were your hire was announced at Big Commerce and you were first interviewed to all of the all hands meetings that I would participate in when, when I was at Big Commerce to even your your interview with CNBC, you know, the day of the IPO, you've just been, you know, so hyper focused on the mid market. And so I guess question that you you kind of alluded to earlier, but uh, I guess two questions. So how did you identify the mid market as where that huge gap was? And then, you know, as the leader of the organization, how do you thread the needle there from balancing what you're doing between like the SMB and the enterprise? Because you, you of course, have customers that, that are in both of those buckets as well. Yeah. So first, we define mid-market as sites selling between a million dollars and $50 million a year. And that's going through that individual site. So it could, the parent brand could be a multi-billion dollar brand. We serve the vast majority of Procter & Gamble's market-leading brands, for example, they're all multi-billion dollar brands. But that's, that might be, you know, if one of their brands is selling that through their online site, then we consider it a mid-market site. So first, it helps to just define what you mean by mid-market. That's what we meant. And we focused on that because I had a lot of familiarity with Magento. When I was leaving eBay PayPal in 2010, it was exactly at the time that they were in the process of looking at buying. Magento. And it was my boss who was sort of the champion of that. So I had strong familiarity with Magento from relatively early in their history. I think Magento only started in about 2008, but it already rocketed to an incredible position of leadership. And fast forward to 2015, if they had, by 2015, they were the leading platform in the world for small, medium, and large enterprise sites, B2B and B2C in most continents. I mean, it's just astonishing how big and successful they had been, but they had that fatal flaw. It's, it's open source on-premise software. Most companies don't want to have to manage their own software if they don't have to. So my thesis was that you know all along, now that SaaS is taking over the low end of the market, we and Shopify were doing that. And then there was the example of demandware at the high end serving $50 million and above business uh, sites. And we knew Demandware super well because we had a common board member for both companies and Larry Bond. So strong familiarity with uh, Demandware successful at the high end, but there was nobody in platform tech going after the mid-market that was taking on Magento for those $1 to $50 million sites. And that's just the natural thing you go after next anyway. If you're already strong with SMBs, which is where we were, we had 50,000 plus SMB customers, You know, then you go after what's next and that's mid-market. So a question here, if you want to answer it. So with eBay and PayPal, you know, they, they acquired Magento. Magento eventually spun out to be its own company. And then they were acquired Adobe. It seemed like such a huge opportunity for under the eBay PayPal umbrella for what they could do with Magento. Why do you think they let that spin out? And what do you think they maybe got wrong or got right? It was not their core business. It actually competed with their core business. So, all right. So first of all, the innovator's dilemma. What did Clay Christensen really mean by that? The dilemma is that if you're a market leader, right? And eBay was a market leader for online marketplaces. If you're a market leader in any category, you have, by virtue of getting large, you become slow. You don't innovate well. And you're going to be attacked. 
by disruptive tech. And he said, the dilemma is how do you respond to that? It's very hard to make yourself innovative. The best thing you can do is start acquiring small, innovative companies. The challenge, though, is how do you keep from stifling them? And they stifled them, right? They, eBay was not composed of a bunch of entrepreneurs or people who really understood and cared that much about off eBay e-commerce. Like all the senior leadership viewed that as the competition. And so you've got this, this natural conflict of interest within the company that stacked some of the decks against Magento. Now, ironically, Magento just kept growing and succeeding in spite of itself, but everybody inside Magento and the ecosystem knew that eBay wasn't really helping it. And you got the further problem that the the bulk of their business was their free community edition, which didn't pay the bills for eBay. So eventually they just needed to spin it back out and allow it to be independent again. And that's, that's some of the history. But then most of that history happened after I left. So a lot of Magento employees. And, and, and so I, yeah. I hear from them sort of what happened during that era. Okay. And yeah, I know uh, one of the things we pitched, especially against, I'll just say, general on-prem solutions was, are you trying to build a dev shop or are you trying to build an e-commerce brand? And you know, of course, that's where big commerce fits in so well is you're trying to build an e-commerce brand. So a question about PayPal. So I remember something that, that you brought up to me when you know, we worked together was around PayPal and how it was, to an extent, it had, uh, I'll say, monopolistic features in where it was in the market. Of course, they've had a lot of competition lately. Going from PayPal, and I know you were at home away for a while in between, but going from PayPal to big commerce, where there's competition coming from every direction, from the incumbents to the upstarts to even those that are more similar and the pace that they're growing at. What was like the biggest shift in, I guess, how you approached the business as a senior leader at PayPal? Where you, again, had somewhat more of a monopoly versus big commerce, which was, again, you were trying to disrupt the space. It's so much harder today than it was in those prior companies. eBay, PayPal, and HomeAway are all two-sided businesses, meaning they bring together demand and supply. And by virtue of that, you get network effects that benefit the world if there's one leading solution. Like if you're a seller and you want to go on a marketplace, you don't want to have to go sell on multiple marketplaces. You want to go to the one that gets all the buyers, right? And if you're a buyer, you want to go to the one that has all the sellers. So it's just natural that eBay emerges as the one big marketplace. Well, PayPal, it's a wallet. It's a payment wallet. And you don't want to have to have five wallets. You want one. And you want to be able to use it in as many merchants as possible. And merchants don't want to have to take 10 wallets. They want to accept the one that most buyers use. So again, it's a natural you know, we call it a natural monopoly. And you know, even HomeAway was like that in vacation rentals. It's a marketplace for vacation rentals. I knew coming into big commerce that this was like nothing to do with that. You go back in time to 2001. I remember after I left Escalate and went to eBay and eBay was trying to figure out, well, how do we think about online retailers and how do we try to serve them or get them to sell on eBay? And I said, well, the one thing you can't do is go try to serve them successfully. There, I counted up at the time, 250 platforms around the world that you could name back in 2001. 250, right? And by the time I came into big commerce, there were more than 500. You go on built with right now, they'll, they'll name more than 500 platforms. Mm-hmm. This is an intensely competitive industry. And I'm sure many folks on this call are also in industries that are very intensely competitive. Anytime it's a one-sided industry, rather than two-sided, you don't get the network effects of, of, of being sort of a natural monopoly. You've got to compete each and every day the hard way based on price and features and service for your customer's business. And that's tough, right? So I had to become a better leader than ever before. You can't get away with operational mediocrity in a highly competitive industry. You can't. When you're natural monopoly, as long as your strategy is good, you can be mediocre at execution and keep growing. But we've got to be better at strategy, at execution, at hiring, at service. We, I mean, we got to do it all well in order to rise above. If you think about it, when we started at Big Commerce, when the founders started in 2009, there probably were already, at, even at that point in time, four or 500 platforms around the world. We were a late, late, late entrant in an already very competitive industry. And why is it that we rose? from that crowded industry to where we are today, 
It's not just because we had an, a better model in being SaaS, because there were other companies that had the SaaS model. We had to make a lot of good strategic decisions, hiring decisions. We had to stay focused on what mattered most, which is customer success. It's been a lot harder and continues to be harder, but that's, I crave that. Things mm-hmm. that are, you atrophy when things are easy. When you're doing things that you've already done before, you know how to do, you atrophy. You only keep growing and getting stronger if things keep getting harder. Whatever you choose to do keeps getting harder. And it got a lot harder for me here. And that's what really fires me up as I approach age 50 and hope it keeps getting harder from here. <laughs> well, uh, you mentioned hiring. I'd love to dive into that in a little bit. And then just, you know, as you've been talking through is just personal growth. And, you know, again, like I could have gone on and on about your your background and bio. And, you know, I love it's so refreshing to hear somebody that's as accomplished as you and you're just every day, it's personal growth, it's personal growth. So we'd love to dive more into that as well. But you mentioned the two-sided marketplaces and with where big commerce is in the ecosystem, of course, you had the big announcement with Facebook, Instagram checkout as they're trying to build a marketplace to compete in the space. The commerce partners and is viewed as a great complement to eBay, to Amazon. With your background and knowledge of how the marketplaces work, how has that helped you in your approach at, at Big Commerce? And as you guys continue to evolve the product roadmap moving forward, when I came into Big Commerce 2015, the mantra around the company was we're democratizing e-commerce and helping small businesses compete in an Amazon world. And the day I arrived, I said, "Well, that's a really stupid <laughs> mission because 50% of all consumer purchases." are happening on Amazon and eBay. And viewing them as the competition and saying that to our merchants is basically handicapping our merchants and preventing them from competing for half of their potential customers. Instead, the smarter thing to do is to help them realize that there may be very successful ways for them to sell on eBay, on Amazon, you know, through Google Shopping, on social networks, Facebook, and Instagram. And it is our job, actually, to be great partners to those platforms, to do free, really high quality integrations so that any company who comes in and creates their branded store, branded presence on big commerce has the easy ability to also extend their sales to those other sites, to Amazon, to eBay, to Facebook, to Instagram. So we've been you know, basically partners since launch and all the evolutions with Facebook and Instagram and what they're doing. We're great partners with Google. And it's really exciting now that Google has decided to reopen up Google Shopping to free listings and not just paid ones. It's a giant opportunity that all merchants should be looking to take full advantage of. You know, we did integrations into eBay and Amazon. We gave those away for free to our merchants so they could cross-sell. This, to me, is in the very best interest of all sellers. They should be looking to try to effectively reach their buyers wherever they are. And, And so it was a giant change in strategy for us. And I would say that now today, we are clearly one of two leaders by far globally in supporting omni-channel, cross-channel sales online. And then when you factor in as well, all the integrations we have in the leading point-of-sale software platforms like Square and Clover and NCR and Heartland and Vend, you know, I, I think online, offline, that's an area where I want us to be the best in the world. Let's talk about that with is, I mean, because big commerce is trying to democratize selling anywhere. It's, you know, wherever the customers are located and they can buy whatever they want, however they want. How has your approach been with even democratizing how they transact? And so, you know, of course, with your background at, at PayPal, big commerce has a strong partnership with PayPal, but it's, you're very much, you know, you want to be, I don't know, the Switzerland or very agnostic to the payment provider, whether it be, online or that offline point of sale solution. And so talk me through that thought process and your strategy with big commerce, because they're, the other approach is that, that you own that checkout. And so how have you kind of weighed the pros and cons there as you really open up the market to people to, to sell yeah, what they want? We've made a very conscious choice to be the opposite of most of our biggest competitors who are software conglomerates. You know, the way our biggest competitors, Salesforce, Adobe, who owns Magento now, Oracle, SAP, and especially Shopify, grow is they keep building or acquiring ever new offerings that they bolt on and try to kind of serve them all, sell them all as a package to their customers. And that's a really effective and smart way to grow a software company. And because they're doing it, we do the opposite. We actually want to be 
open SaaS. We want to be the world's best platform at the one thing we focus on, which is our core platform, knowing that there are entire industry of banks and payment processors, and there's no one size fits all. You know, what Stripe's best at is different than what PayPal and Braintree are best at, which is different than Adyen, which is different than Chase. You know, pick any of these incredible players. They're each great at something different. And we want to be the best partner to each of those because our competitor to the north competes against them and actually surcharges merchants an extra 2% if they use one of those better payment providers. So we choose not to compete in shipping. We partner with you know, in fulfillment, we partner with ShipBob. Uh, we choose not to compete in email marketing. We partner with MailChimp and Clavio and DotMailer and all the best ones there. We don't compete in point of sale software. We partner with the names that I gave earlier. This strategy of openness that allows each business to pick kind of the best of breed for their specific business model, their product, their legacy systems, the customers and geographies they want to serve is not the best offering for every single merchant out there. But we think it's the best for established businesses, ones who are offline and online, ones who are migrating sites, ones who have complexity. We think we're going to give them in partnership with our great partners, the best overall offering tailored to their business. And I would note that that same model in an on-premise era is how Magento grew so rapidly to become number one. What was so great about Magento? It was open source, right? It was the most open of all platforms. I mean, anybody who's an open source developer or, or a business or their systems integrator could go into the source code and extend it, modify it, and integrate it. And that's what you know complex businesses need. That's what the mid-market and above needed. And they've and it's just like it was almost overnight, matter of three, four years. They went from non-existent to the biggest one in the world. So that model, we think, was both the right model in an on-premise era. It's also the right model in a SaaS era for established complex businesses. We just had to turn our business, which was closed SaaS when I got there, into open SaaS, right? With the APIs and the service layer for those integrations and customizations. And that's where we are today. We call it open SaaS, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to be the successor to Magento in a SaaS world where it's open SaaS, and we give our customers the flexibility to really optimize around their business model. Nice. I, I love that. And right before joining Big Commerce, I was helping run an e-commerce brand called Watchmaster. We were headquartered in Berlin. We sold all over Europe. And it was such a great experience for me outside of just you know trying to do hyper growth, but trying to sell in all these different countries where in the US, I don't think we realize the complexities that it takes to sell overseas because there were, especially at that time, you know, there were different payment processors, how people would transact was different. People in Berlin, even the affluent would have a very small credit card limit. Our average order value was extremely high where people in the UK bought very similarly to the US. People in France only wanted to buy from like, they would, you know, a France, France payment processor. It was, it was all over the place, it was crazy. You spent a considerable amount of time running PayPal Europe. How did your learnings there influence how you're trying to take big commerce and really go for global domination versus just you know very small markets? Well, first of all, I had to grow up in that job because I had never been a general manager before. And then all of a sudden they threw me in and I was running all of Europe for PayPal. And there were, if not a thousand people across Europe when I got there, there certainly were more than that when I left. And so it was big and it was complex. And, and every country is different when it comes to payments in Europe, right? The French are all using Visa cards. They call them credit cards, but they're really kind of debit cards. You know, the Dutch are all using Ideal. The Germans are all using various bank transfer methods. The Brits are using traditional credit cards. And so we had to reinvent ourselves for the local payment preferences of consumers and businesses in each country and figure out how to adapt our model time after time after time. And that gave me you know, a lot of sort of experience with being strategically nimble and open-minded and listening to your customers and not just giving them what you already have and assuming that that's what they want, but figuring out what are the biggest pain points. And the hardest one was Germany. Like we got Germany wrong when we first went in there. We came up with a solution for bank transfers that was different than what the market really wanted. And 
I kept facing, you know, people at eBay and PayPal saying, oh yeah, Germany's not working. You got to shut it down. And I refused. I said, over my dead body, I don't want to lie down in the train tracks four or five times over the span of several years and say, I am betting my, my reputation at this company on the ability to crack the German code at PayPal and modify our model in a way that really works for a bank transfer-based country. There's a problem here. Like, I wouldn't be saying this if there weren't a, an unsolved problem. It's just our original mm-hmm. solution was the wrong one. You know, and so we came up with a, a revised solution. And, you know, by the time I left in 2009, PayPal Europe, as 0509, you know, that business was booming. And today, I'm sure it's a multi-billion dollar revenue business that they would have shut down if they, you know, had allowed an, an initial failure to cost any conviction that there was a strategy for success. So I want to talk about the IPO and a couple of questions around there. So BigCommerce went the traditional IPO route. I know direct listings and SPACs are getting all the buzz lately. It seems like there's, I don't know, 10 new SPACs created like every single day now. When you're evaluating the different options, and I know things have changed with that they allow with direct listings now versus when you when um, BigCommerce approached the market, when did you know the traditional model was your preferred route? And I guess, how did you evaluate the pros and cons of some other options? Well, at the time we made the decision, SPACs were not allowed by the SEC to raise funds. All they could do is introduce float. So if you're a company like us who wanted to do what companies normally want to do at an IPO, which is raise funds for the company, for your balance sheet, you couldn't do that as a SPAC. So it was always an easy decision for us. We we both wanted to make our stock publicly traded, but we also wanted to raise money. IPO was the only option. We only IPO'd about a month ago. And in that month, there has been a change in the rules at the SEC, where now, I believe, my understanding is that SPACs are now allowed to also raise money. So if that had been the case back then, would we have considered a SPAC? Maybe. But you know, in that scenario, I don't really know why it would be better than an IPO. You mentioned established leaders are leaving the low end underserved. And, you know, that's where big commerce was. Obviously, the Shopify is still, still going hardcore after like the underserved. And so with all of our professional bets, you know, from yours starting, you know, over 20 years ago, like you covered on, on e-commerce long term, really coming to fruition right now with just this, the massive, you know, tailwinds from COVID and seeing other companies like PayPal, Square, Etsy, and Shopify thriving, just like big commerce is. When you were raising the last round for big commerce, and then through the IPO process, how are you able to convince investors that you know some of the other competitors like Shopify or others that I mentioned were not a threat? Well, we had a funny experience because we almost went through the IPO process twice. We We originally filed confidentially with the SEC in January, and we're planning to IPO in April. And so we were, you know, three quarters of the way along that route when the pandemic broke out. And before the pandemic happened, you know, we got plenty of questions around, is the market big enough for both you and Shopify? And how are you really different than them? Then remarkably, after the pandemic shut the world down and and e-commerce just skyrocketed, in a world where you can't go into stores or don't want to go into stores. We never got any questions about, is the market big enough anymore? And it was a lot easier at that point in time to explain why the world actually needs two leading e-commerce platforms. And really what was most effective for us was this description of uh, closed SaaS versus open SaaS. Shopify is closed SaaS, right? They don't allow the flexibility, not only in their own product with APIs and openness, but also in their extensions, right? When they go and say, hey, look, we're going to compete in shipping and we're going to compete in payments, they alienate and compete against players like you. When they say, we're going to compete in payments and we're going to surcharge 2%, any other solution that we happen to even allow make possible, right? They turn all the banks into their enemies. And so they just go through their stack and they close it off and serve this like prepackaged offering. And we believe that what they have, this prepackaged offering, the software stack, is an incredibly good proposition, especially for start from scratch businesses that want everything on a silver platter and, and are happy to build a business within a playbook. But for the world's companies that are complex and need openness and flexibility and best of breed, open SaaS is the right answer. And so it's not a one model 
is always better than the other model. Their model is really oriented for startups and clearly works spectacularly well for them. Our model is focused on established, complex, fast-growing businesses that really want to optimize, and it's open versus closed. When folks kind of heard that and then thought about other use cases and industries, I mean, how did Magento rise up and become the overwhelming number one in an on-prem era against folks that were there before them, like Oracle and IBM and 500 other platforms, right? It was that same open model. Perfect. And so I wanted to get into some of the soft side of the business. And so um, I know when you, you took over at Big Commerce, Eddie Makalani, who is uh, the original co-founder, he was serving as CEO. And, you know, he was part of the process to help bring you in. But, you know, you're not coming into a brand new company. You're coming into a company with hundreds of employees doing tens of millions of dollars in revenue. So how did you prioritize your approach, you know, whether from ingratiating yourself with the team to like product roadmap as, as a new leader and CEO at, at an established company? I, mean, I had to do the same thing when I went into PayPal Europe. So I was taking over for someone else who was then, who had then been my boss. I had to do the same thing at HomeAway, you know, where I was kind of running the company on behalf of the founder CEO. The simple answer is that the first thing I always do is try to nail the strategy within the first two months. Like I just put on the calendar, I did this at PayPal, I did this at PayPal Europe, PayPal right after eBay bought PayPal. Within two months, we had a strategy summit to figure out, well, what's our post-acquisition strategy? I did that as soon as I got to PayPal Europe. I did that as soon as I got to Homeway. I did that as soon as I got to Big Commerce. It's always, what's the strategy first? Because if you've got a clear strategy and the ability to articulate it and persuade people that logically and emotionally it is the right direction to go in, then you know that's kind of half the equation. And the other half of the equation is team building and you know sort of the human connection and the inspirational side, which you know, isn't my strongest of strong suits, but I got really lucky at Big Commerce because our CFO, Robert Alvarez, is like the best person I've ever worked with <laughs> on the culture side of things, on the human side of things. And we're nice compliments to each other, right? You've got the culture and you've got the performance orientation coming out of the two of us in combo. I don't think I could have done it all myself. Like if if I had to be both uh, the cultural glue of the company as well as the strategic and operational leader, that might have, you know, flexed some of my weaker muscles too much. And I don't think we would have come out as strongly as we did by virtue of having, you know, other leaders who are great at things that were not my top skills. Nice. And yeah, of course, shout out to RA or Robert Alvarez, such a great person to just learn from and watch speak and work alongside. I mean, his... Yeah, his, his like ability to just exude the culture is, you know, second to none. So definitely shout out to RA. Talking about leadership in the company, you know, you've you're able to attract and hire some great talent. People like Brian Dot, the CTO, Jimmy Duvall, who oversees product, uh, Russ Klein, you've known for a while to oversee biz dev. Like, what would you recommend to people just as they look to attract and hire people? Like, what do you look for? What is your approach, especially with hiring these, these extremely key roles? So I have uh, super, super, super high standards for myself and pretty high standards for other people, right? You can't, you know, you can't make your bar 10 out of 10 because that's just unfair, but you want to make it at least eight or nine out of 10 and try to try to look for people who are world-class. And then once you find those people, the selling part is as important as the recruiting part. The thing, though, in interviews, I think far too many people fixate. Like if you've got an interview panel of six to 10 people for a candidate, an awful lot of them are interviewing for the two same things. Resume checklists. Have you done X? Have you done Y? Have you done Z? You know, stuff that you can almost see on the resume. And asking whether they've done it doesn't really give you a super strong perspective on how well they've done it, what makes them tick, and or they're interviewing for fit. Oh, I like this person. I can work with this person. So I let other people mostly interview for those two things. What I get into is really what makes the person tick? What's their superpower? And is that superpower something that leads to great results that they can claim credit for rather than just happened around them, right? That they deserve, I should say, they deserve credit for, not that they just claim credit for. 
I'm trying to figure out, you know, with three, four levels of questioning, just how good somebody is. And I would say uh, for several years, my first several years at Big Commerce, half or more of the candidates that I interviewed when it was somebody else's hiring decision, and then they bring a candidate to me and say, is this person, and they, they'd only bring them to me if they, if they were ready to hire them. And half or more of the time, I'd reject that person. Not even say, no, I'm a negative, but if you think, okay, I'll support that. Half the time, I would just veto. And in fact, the reason you came into the company, Casey, there was one of those candidates before you where the marketing team was, you know, they had somebody they thought was a check the boxes on experience. And I interviewed that person. It was just like a warm body who had some experience, but frankly, wasn't particularly good at all. And then I interviewed you and I'm like, wow, this guy is, he's world-class. He is somebody who is truly at the forefront of his discipline. And that's the kind of talent and and innovation because you are self-made. It's not like somebody told you how to do all of the incredible, you know, content marketing and, and digital marketing you had done. You figured that out on your own. And it's like that, that's the kind of talent we need. Nice. Well, I, I greatly appreciate that. I did not team up with that question. So you mentioned superpowers. You know, I think your your ability to focus, you mentioned conviction earlier are, you know, two of your, you know, huge superpowers. When hiring, and you mentioned um, you know, RA or Robert Alvarez and, and some of his superpowers. When when you're hiring people around you, I guess how do you try to balance, you know, your superpowers versus theirs so that everybody's not the same person, but you're compl- you're all complementing each other. Or, yeah, or yeah. I never go into interviews with a resume or a personality checkbox. I always go in open-minded. My first several questions, and I don't want to reveal them here in case anybody ever interviews with me. I want <laughs> you to be surprised. My first several questions are meant to get to the fundamentals around what makes somebody tick and what do they think that they're distinctively good at. And it's my job to be open-minded and figure out okay, let me, let me just find out what those are and then be open-minded to, well, what would it mean if that person brought that set of experience and aptitudes to our company? How might that help us? I don't have a presumption that I need exactly this profile, especially because in my experience, I mean, just take any leadership position, a CMO, head of marketing. Some CMOs are spike on the creative side of marketing and branding, others on the analytical side, others on the process and hiring side. I mean, you just go through, you never run into somebody who's great at all of them, right? Same with a CFO, same with so many different functions. It's very rare that you find somebody who is a rock star in every dimension because personality profiles almost make that impossible. So I like to be open-minded. And by virtue of being open-minded, what you try to do is bring in the very best possible talent so that they, you, you benefit from someone's strengths Invariably, everybody, myself included, has gaps or weaknesses. And then you're kind of counting on diversity of skill sets to, to plug holes and, and complement. And sometimes you find yourself in a situation where someone's superpowers, you know, are accompanied by some weaknesses and they haven't compensated for those weaknesses yet. As a general rule, I don't think the solution is to try to make an introvert or an extrovert or a creative person an analyst or vice versa. Instead, you need to surround that person underneath them or beside them with folks who have those spikes, right? And so you get the best of both worlds, right? It's, it's diversity. The last thing I would want is a monoculture where I keep hiring other people who are like me. I mean, you can't find all that many people that are as short and scrawny as I am. Pseudo professional cyclists. So with the... IPO, you know, now only a month behind you. How has your approach changed, if at all, from product roadmap to hiring to marketing and sales? You know, has, has anything changed in what you do at BigCommerce? No. I, there's only one thing. You have to think, you know, post-IPO, when you have a, now a, a tradable currency, your stock, you can be more open-minded about growth avenues that cost money, right? And so you have to start considering options that were not really on the table or affordable pre-IPO. So that's one difference. But the strategy of the company, the top priorities, the roadmap, the geographic expansion, the values, those all have to stay the same. If they don't, it's, it's kind of like uh, you're being corrupted. 
by the public markets. And you can't let the public markets corrupt you. They don't know how to run your business. You got to ignore those and you got to focus on your customers and your partners and keep growing, growing with them. Nice. And I know you have your earnings call uh, in a little over an hour, so I won't ask any questions there. I'm sure everybody will be you know, checking that out closely. I'm really excited to hear you know, the latest from BigCommerce that you, that you all now expose. It's, it's great now that now that BigCommerce is public, you know, a lot of the stuff that I'd see behind the scenes in the past is now open for everybody to discuss. And so it's been just very impressive and exciting to watch what, what you and the team have done over there you know, since... You know, from, again, from when I was there, since I left during the IPO process. So again, huge congrats to you and, and everybody there. It's it just love to see it. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us and appreciate everybody's time here joining us. I know you've got a lot you can do in running your business. And so my last question, which I end all these is, Brent, what is your number one advice to entrepreneurs today? I'm going to humbly punt on that because I'm not an entrepreneur. I've never been an entrepreneur. I've never started a company. I've never tried to start a company. I've never even felt like I would be good at starting a company. And that's what entrepreneurs do. What I do is go in and join companies that basically trigger my passions, that do things that I love to do and want to do every day for work and help them try to grow to be 10 times as big. And so, you know, I guess I don't have any advice that's good advice for somebody who themselves is an entrepreneur, other than perhaps, you know, be open-minded to bringing in people like me to support you, right? I'm a CEO today, but that's only for the last five years. The rest of my career, I was always working for other people, one, two, three levels down, four, five levels down. Bring in people like me who really, really, really have passion for your business and your mission, right? And they're motivated by that more than they're motivated by their job or their title and their career progress and who can contribute, you know, whatever their own superpowers are to helping your business succeed. I love that. I mean, I think that's amazing advice in itself because that's something that I, I don't know, internally battle with all the time because I think I fall more in your model, which is find the entrepreneurs and the founders that you just believe in their mission and you love what they're doing and you want to join them for the ride and you think you can pour, you know, fuel on the fire to take them to the next level. And so you don't always have to be the founder or the entrepreneur or uh, you know, you can come in in, in a lot of different other, or other capacities and have a ton of success as well. So again, top of the hour, Brent, really appreciate it. I learn a bunch as always. And, uh, you know, I, I look forward to us talking soon. Well, it's great to remain a partner of yours. I'm a huge fan of, of yours, Casey. And you. I wish you and everybody who joined the call huge success. Thank Thanks. you very much, Brent. Take care.